0: To behold is to stand in awe and amazement. Uh, to behold is, is probably what you did as a kid, the first time your parents took you to an amusement park, and, and you drove up and you started to see the roller coasters and the and the water park. You'd never been there before, and you just stood there in awe over uh, this, these, this, this park that you were about to be enjoying. Behold is, is what you do when you witness the birth of your first child. Behold is what you do when you witness your wife walking down the aisle to you in, in, in uh, your marriage, your wedding ceremony. Behold is what you do when you stand out in front of the Grand Canyon and the Alps. Behold is what I would guess probably almost all of us did on October 20, 27, 2006, when Adam Wainwright st- struck out Brandon Inge to win the World Series for the Cardinals. So last, last time they all applauded at that, at that. I guess most of the time you get in trouble with these uh, sports analogies, but uh, that's a pretty safe one. And I won't mention the, I won't mention Missouri or Kansas. Um, So, so in essence, beholding is enjoying. It is adoring. It is staring at it. it is longing for desiring the thing which actually deserves to be looked at and desired and seen. Let me tell you why this is immensely important in your life. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3:18 says this and this is kind of where I'm taking this whole series from this verse. Paul says, "We are beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the to another." Here's the basic principle. He says everybody in this room does what is called beholding. Everybody has something at which they stare and look at and long for and uh desire and the thing or the person which you behold is the thing which you will be like. Because that's why he says you're transformed into that image. And the more deeply you behold it, the more deeply you will become like it. And the reason this is important is because if you behold, ultimately, for instance, uh, money and possessions, you won't become like green paper, but you will become beholden to money, enslaved to money. That's what it means to be beholden to something. Um, and Paul says that we are called to be beholden. Uh, to Christ, and I think this is you know this this idea happens all the time. Think about an advertising. Mastercard assumes that if you have if you if you have beheld the the glory of Peyton Manning on the football field, then you're going to want to use their product because he's advertising their product, and you want to be like him. So that's that's kind of how uh, the world works. And so the idea is that if you uh, whatever you adore or value or treasure, that is the thing that you are going to be like. And here's why. I, Everybody in this room, whether you believe this or not, whether you even believe in Jesus or not, I think the the idea is that you you want to believe this is true. You want to believe that the ability to behold is true. Why do I say that? Because if it is true, it means that those fleeting moments of pleasure I just talked about, moments of time with uh, a lover, moments of uh, going to the amusement park, the baseball game in the World Series, the national championship uh, basketball game, those fleeting moments, birth of your child, your wedding day, if it is true that there is a God to be beheld in this way, then it means that those fleeting moments are not just fleeting, but they are echoes and they are foretastes of maximized and eternal joy and pleasure and glory in an age to come. And that's why uh, this is important. That's why we're going to spend six weeks trying to behold or hold up Jesus from about six different angles, some of which you may not have ever even considered. So I think that's enough. That brings us to our sermon today. And Paul actually uses that word glory. Today's sermon is behold the glory of Jesus. So it kind of transitions us nicely because we're probably asking, why in the world is Jesus even worth beholding and why? So let me read the first three verses, 2 Corinthians 4 four to six i'm gonna read those three verses and we'll dive in this is god's word in their case paul's talking about the case of those who cannot see the glory of christ in their case the god of this world that's satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of christ who is the image of god for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I stand before you uh, this morning, reminded of the words that Paul spoke when he first came to the Corinthians. He said, Uh, That he did not come to them with words of eloquence, or lofty wisdom, or brilliant rhetoric. But he came to them in fear and trembling, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Father, I'm fully aware of my inadequacies this morning. Fully aware of my incapabilities to explain the most important of all concepts. And so we hang on your promise to demonstrate your power by your spirit and to hold up to us the glory of Christ in this moment. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The topic of this sermon, the glory of Christ, is of exponential importance in your life. It's not my words, not me, not not my sermon that's important, it's the topic of the glory of Christ, that is of exponential importance in your life, more important than anything you have planned to do today, or this week, or this month? Why do I say that? I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between science and faith. I've been writing about it a lot on my blog, on our website, and I, one, of the, one of the biggest criticisms that atheistic scientists have of Christianity is this, they will say, how can you say Looking at the universe, billions upon billions upon billions of light years high and deep and wide, uh, galaxies that we cannot even see, growing, the universe growing larger and larger every day. How can you say that God would make of central significance and importance human beings to live in the center of that on this thing planet called Earth? It just doesn't make sense that He would waste all this other space on that. And of course, if you believe that God set up the universe to put human beings at the center, at the, at the central part of significance, then they are absolutely right. But the Bible does not say that at all. What the Bible actually says is that the entire universe is so vast and boundless and immeasurable and wonderful because it's a reflection not of the greatness or significance of us, but of the greatness and significance of God himself. That is the reason God created it uh, that large, that way. That is the reason he would need to make stars millions of times the brightness of our sun and galaxies far greater. That is why we can't even exhaust the, the, the knowledge of our solar system, much less our galaxy or our universe, because it demonstrates the size and the breadth and the depth of God himself. He is inexhaustible in his being. And so it's all set up and designed to display the greatness of God. So in other words, what I would say is that the twinkling of every star, the growing of every blade of grass, the crying of every child, the the, the the breathing of every human being on earth is designed around one purpose. And that purpose is glory. The purpose in Scripture is called glory. The glory of God, to be specific. And if beholding is what we do and we stand in awe of something, glorifying is what we do when we respond to the greatness of the thing we behold. God's glory is the fact that he is infinite in all his perfections. And that from him and to him and through him are all things, as Paul says in another place. So if you're asking the question like, why would something like beholding the glory of Jesus be important to me? The answer is, it's absolutely what you were made for. It's absolutely what you were created to do. You will never find, I think our culture teaches we can find significance in the mirror. And I promise you, you will never find true value or significance uh, in the mirror, but only through uh, the glory of God. John Piper says it well. He says, God's purpose is not to make much of us, but to enable us to enjoy making much of him forever. Now that brings up the question, doesn't it? What about those who don't see it? What about those who say, yeah, I've heard all about Jesus, not really interested. Yeah, I've heard all about Jesus, uh, not so glorious in my eyes. Or even for the best of believers who only get a slight glimpse of this glory. What does Paul say about that? First, I would say, if you're in that place, just you know, skeptical, unsure, saying, why would uh, I even care to think about the glory of Jesus, I would ask you, Uh, just to do three things for me, make your time worthwhile this morning. One, ask yourself, is it possible that there is something out there which you have not yet seen or experienced that might actually be true? Ask yourself, there's something out there that maybe you don't know yet, you haven't seen or experienced that actually could be a reality in the world. I found this uh, recently to be true. My wife and I were in Washington, D.C., and uh, we had a great trip there. I'd never been to D.C. before, so really love seeing uh, the town. But Tuesday night, we're in the hotel room, and Amy says... Hey, uh, we, we we need to get to this thing at nine o'clock in the morning. Do you want to set the alarm clock? And I said, No, we haven't slept past seven o'clock in three years. So why would we set an alarm? We're going to wake up at you know seven fifteen at the latest. So she says, Okay, I'm telling you, we need to set the alarm clock. But if you don't want to, we don't have to. So we didn't set it. Closed the drapes. Went to bed. Uh, woke up in the morning. Rolled over. I said, Honey, what time is it? She said, It's almost ten. And I said, Ten o'clock. It looks so dark in here. It's just I mean, I I wouldn't have guessed it was past seven o'clock. And of course, it's because at a hotel room, you know, you have those darkening uh, darkening shades that close. I'm thinking about definitely getting some of those for our room. Uh, Or maybe I should get it for my son's room. That would actually be even better. Maybe he would sleep to 10 o'clock. But the idea was the sun was out. It was a glorious day outside. It was beautiful and bright. Everybody else was out enjoying the day, but to us... We didn't see it. There was something that existed out there, but we were shut up in a dark hotel room and didn't know that there was a glorious sunshine, glorious, beautiful day going on outside. So that's the first thing I would ask you. Uh, the second thing I would ask you is if you're skeptical about this idea of glory, this idea that, that God exists or that God or Jesus could be actually glorious, I would say, ask yourself this, is this. This should be something, even if you don't believe it at all, you should want it to be true. You should wish it were true. Because what it means is that all the unfulfilled desires and wishes that you have had in your life for relationship, for whatever, they all have a fulfillment. They all have an answer. They all have an end in Christ. And three, I would say that you know Paul doesn't skip over this. This is exactly what he says here. He begins to tell us what do we think about people or uh, those of us who say, I just don't see why you think Jesus is such a great guy. This is what Paul says, verse four. In their case, those that don't see, the God of this world has blinded the minds. What has he blinded them to? He's blinded them to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's what Satan's uh, job is. This entity we call Satan, his job is not first and foremost to make you miserable or discourage you or, or worry you, though he might use those things. His first and foremost job and task is to blind you is to make you think that Jesus is really not worth seeing at all. To make you think that Jesus is really boring and irrelevant and absolutely of no value to be seen at all. That is what um, Satan's task is really about. It's not that uh, Satan doesn't believe, right? Satan believes in God. God has spoken to him. He has been in the courts of God. He is under God's power and authority and command, and yet... Satan sees the facts about God. He sees truths about God, but he doesn't see the glory of God. There's nothing about Christ that would make Satan want to stop and worship. And that's the difference between knowing about God and actually seeing him coming out of the hotel room into the light, so to speak. Now this might be a surprise, but I think what you see here is that um, this idea of glory of Christ, it's not just some addition we tack on, hey, that's a good thing about the gospel, but it's actually intrinsic to the gospel itself. What do we, I ask the question all the time in membership class, what is the gospel? And everybody gives different answers, and there are a lot of different sort of definitions in, in Scripture in a sense. Uh, but people will say, you know, gospel is the good news. The gospel is Jesus' love for sinners. The gospel is uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's justification, it's salvation. Those are, uh, those are all true, but look how Paul defines it in verse 4. He calls it the gospel of the glory of Christ. In other words, the gospel whose subject is the glory of Christ. The gospel that which is all about displaying the glory and the beauty of Christ. And what this means is that the gospel is not just about getting you forgiven. It's not just about getting you know, the guilt monkey off your back. It's about showing you something. And that thing is glory. That thing is beauty. That thing is perfection. That thing is joy. And really, I think this is good news. You might think it doesn't make a lot of sense or it's not really relevant, but I think this is good news because what it says is, if Jesus is not glorious, if Jesus is not beautiful, if Jesus is not fun to be with, then life now and especially eternity forever with him will not be good. It will not be fun. It will be long and boring be better than hell, I guess, but not exactly a cu- your, you know, your cup of tea. It's also good news because it says the gospel is not simply, oh, look, your Savior has come now, and he brought you a new list of rules to obey. He brought you a list of things that you need to do or not do so that God will be really impressed with you and, not, and really not impressed with everybody else out there who doesn't uh, obey these things. It tells you that salvation and the gospel itself is about more than simply doing the right things or even just believing the right things. It's about the revelation of a beautiful person. So everything about the gospel is designed around and intended not to just get you forgiven. Forgiveness is, a, is not the end. It's the means to the end of getting you to God. That's what Jesus says, John seventeen twenty four, the last prayer, not the last prayer, but one of the last prayers, high priestly prayer. He says, Father, I want them to be with me. Why? So they will see my glory. That is Jesus' purpose in coming give you a little illustration of this. Uh, suppose that someone that you love, suppose you had a, a loved one, maybe it's a child, and, and they got trapped in another country, or another continent by the, by the government there. They weren't allowed out and the government would not allow you in. And they're on a different continent. You're trying to get there. You don't have the money. You don't have the airfare to get there. And what's more important, you don't have a visa. You don't have the permission of the country to get in if you wanted to. And then let's suppose that uh, someone with connections came along, that you met someone that had the right connections. And they said, listen, I've gone, I've bought your round-trip fare, bought your fare, bought your, uh, your friend's fare. You can bring them home with you. I've, gotten, I've talked to the consulate there. I've gotten a visa for you. Now you can get into and out of the country with no problem. Would you take those things, would you take the, the airfare, the plane ticket, and the visa and just simply go home and sit on them and enjoy those beautiful gifts? Well, absolutely not. Those gifts were there to remove the obstacles to get you to the real gift which is the person that you love, to be in the presence of the person you love. That's what the gospel says about forgiveness. That's what the gospel says about God's love. It is there to remove the obstacles between you and God, to get you into the place where, in the presence of the person uh, that you love. And so God's purpose in forgiveness, or in all the ideas of the gospel, is not just to simply do something nice, but is to show you his Glory. Let's look a little bit more closely at this. Paul says uh, it, it's a personal glory. It's not a it's not an impersonal glory. It's not looking at you know, hey, look at that glorious sunset. Look at that glorious canyon. Uh, it's a personal glory. Paul says in verse six, it's where in the face of Christ. What's the most personal part of us? It's our faces, right? The face is the window to the soul. That's, we look each other in the eye. when We want to say something serious. We look away from one another when we're ashamed. Because the face is the window into the soul. And so, so Paul is going to say this is personal. And what we see is we begin to think about the person of Christ and the face of Christ and who he really is. So we begin to see that he He brings together in himself. If we think about all the greatest attributes and, and, and highest perfections of the people that we love and honor and adore the most. Jesus brings them all together in One person, a divine array, an exquisite array of uh, diverse excellency, all in one person. And I began to think about that and just think about how amazing Jesus' life uh, really was. The fact that he had uncompromising justice, but yet it was always tempered with tender mercy. He was a man who had the power and authority to calm the storms, and yet he wrought babies. On his lap. He was a man who brought and allowed a prostitute to come and worship at his feet. And yet he made a whip and drove out the religious from the temple. He was a man who went through uh, the earth healing lepers and raising the dead and healing the blind. He was a man that said, I have the authority on earth to lay my life down and take it up again. And yet he meekly submitted to Pilate and to the authorities around. All power, all glory, and yet all submission, all humility, all meekness. He cared for his mother while dying on the cross. He forgave those who killed him. And on the third day, he was he was raised again. A glorious person of divine perfection. And that's why Paul says in verse 5, listen, we don't preach ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord. Because there's no glory In anything else. There's no enjoyment. There's no desire. We must preach Christ alone. And that's what leads us to an experience that's described in verse 6. What does Paul say in verse 6? We read it earlier. He said, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What's that referring to? Obviously creation. God was over the darkness. There was nothing existed. And he said, let there be light. God spoke words and worlds came into being. He says, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so what he says is, there is a creation event that must happen. Uh, we're all born sort of locked into that hotel room, as it were, unable to really see the glory of Christ. And what we need is a moment, a sovereign word of God. We need a, 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 a God to speak into that and say, let there be light. Let the drapes come open. Let you see what is actually there to be seen and appreciated and adored and enjoyed. And I think what we eventually see here is what Jesus demands is not simply what Jesus demands is uh is not simply that we do the right things for him or that we even believe the right things of him. The gospel is more than that. He wants to be seen. In other words let's say that you have a friend in Atlanta and she's always telling you how wonderful and amazing her boyfriend is. You never met him before. You believe her, you know her, I mean, you believe her boyfriend is a great guy, but if you've never met him, you really don't have the sense of it. Or if you're a child and you're going for the very first time to an amusement park and your parents are saying, uh, this is what the rides will be like, this is what the food will be like, this is what the games and the atmosphere is all like. Well, you believe them, but I mean, you really have an experience and so you don't know. You know. Lots of you women have told me that childbirth is painful. I, I believe you. I don't know, and I'm glad I never have to. Uh, but it's one of those things where you have to experience it to really see it, to really understand what it's uh, actually like. And that's what Paul says uh, about Jesus, is that he will not merely be explained. He must be experienced. He will not merely be, merely be written about, but he will be worshiped. And I think a test question on that is is this. We we've, You've Probably, if you've been around church for very much, you've probably heard this kind of like evangelistic question, which says, If you died today and stood before God, and he said, Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? You know, the, the correct answer is uh, because I believed on Christ and I trust him alone for uh, salvation. That's a good question. I think another a, a better question for this setting is this What if Jesus said to you, Why do you want to come in? Why do you want to be here for all of eternity? Billions upon billions upon billions upon billions of years with me. And you might say, well, you know, I'd like to be with my lost loved ones. You might say, um, I would really like to be free of uh, the burdens and the suffering that I've experienced. You might say, you know, heaven has got to have the greatest and longest golf game of any uh, place ever. And all those things would be absolutely true. I don't know about the golf, but Tom says it's true. <laughs> um all those things would be absolutely true, but the chief answer really should be, I want to be there because you're there. The chief answer should be, because I get to be in your presence. Imagine, imagine asking, imagine your wife asking, you know, why do you want to marry me? And you said, well, you know, your your family's got a lot of money. It seems like it'd be fun to, you know, hang out with you and i not... The answer is, because I love you, and I want to be with you, and I want to be in your presence. That's the answer that a relationship actually demands. Now, Paul's been talking on and on. In, in these three chapters, he he mentions glory 16 times. In these two chapters, glory 16 times. He's been talking about glory and power and, and all these huge terms. And then he says something very strange in verse 7, at least it seems strange to me. He says, But we have this treasure, the treasure of the unleashing power of God to demonstrate his glory. We have it in jars of clay. Now, if you've ever used clay, clay is very cheap and inexpensive and fragile. Uh in that day they used jars to carry anything around and they would break them all the time. And they were just they were worthless, they were fragile, they were weak. And so suddenly Paul goes from talking about power and glory to suddenly saying But we're really carrying this thing around, this glory of Christ, in a jar of clay, in a vessel of weakness, as it were. Why does he say that? I think it's because he starts anticipating this objection. And maybe it's an objection some of you have been thinking the whole time. You're talking about the glory of Christ, talking about how great he is, talking about about how wonderful uh, God can be and all this kind of thing. But I see it all as just rhetoric, rubbish. Because you say God is glorious, my life has not been glorious. I have not enjoyed a glorious existence. And I think Paul's anticipating that objection. And so instead of whistling in the dark and skipping over it, what does he say? So I'll make a list for you of all the things that, some of the things that have plagued me. And he says in verses 8 to 10, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus could also be manifested in our bodies. He starts to admit that he has been afflicted and persecuted. Paul, of all people, knew what it was to be stoned and beaten and whipped and have bodily ailments and be rejected and be lonely. He experienced depression. He experienced anxiety. He experienced every one of these things. In fact, he probably suffered more than any other person in scripture, save Jesus himself. And so Paul goes right into this, and in this section, it seems to me that that glory is paired with the strangest of things. You talk about glory and power, you don't expect to hear about suffering. You don't expect to hear about pain, about affliction, about being perplexed, about anxiety. You don't expect to hear those things. But Paul says somehow they're wound up together. And he begins uh, to talk about this. Because he says, in the midst of all this affliction, I've maintained hope. Because he says, I was not forsaken. I was not driven to despair. And I was not crushed, ultimately. And I think what he's saying here is that the glory of Christ is of such a quality and nature that circumstances do not diminish it or increase it. It cannot be increased and it cannot be diminished. In other words, Jesus is not glorious because you are wealthy or healthy. And Jesus does not become inglorious when we are poor and sick. In fact, the opposite is sometimes true. And so I think Paul goes into this. A passage, and he starts to say, listen, let me show you how you can experience and see the glory of Christ in the midst of suffering. And I, I just want to give you, um, I'm going to give you six quick things here. Uh, I think Paul probably does about 10 or 12, but six is more than enough for us, and so we'll, I'll just take those on very quickly. First and foremost, Paul says this, you need to see, if you're going to see Jesus's glory and suffering, you need to see that he suffered first, and he suffered worst. You notice how Paul says it. He could have said we're we're given over to death all day long. But what he says is we're given over to the death or the dying of Jesus all day long. In other words, we follow clearly in his footsteps. Because it is he, you know, Christianity is the only religion. It's the only worldview that gives you a God that doesn't try to get himself off the hook in a world of suffering and pain and evil. Instead, he puts himself very much on the hook, doesn't he? He puts himself on a cross and suffers first. And he suffers worst. And so our suffering and our pain is a means by which we follow in his footprints. And Paul doesn't say, you know, like all these things were really just unfortunate accidents and I, man- I managed to kind of work through them. what he says is they actually became the context of experiencing glory. I don't know how that works. I can't really explain it to you. Like I said, they're, they're wrapped up together in a way that is almost inexplicable. Number two, he says we must see that Jesus gives us a purpose for our bodies. You might have wondered before, why do I have this body? I would really like this body to be like this. I'd like it to be healthier, or younger, or uh, better. Some of us have old bodies, some young, some healthy, some sick, some weak, and some strong, and a variety in between. But this is what he says about the body: we carry the bo- we carry in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus can be manifested in our bodies. Your body is given to you specifically for a purpose, and that purpose is to make much of Christ. That purpose is another word, manifest, another word of glorifying Christ. You know, this finally helped me understand a little bit about what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 2. He's a very famous passage. He says, when I came to you, I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I I say, no, Paul, what you meant to say was, I desire to preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. Paul didn't say preach. He said he knew the word for preach. He said no. In other words, what he was saying is that it's of such a degree, following the footsteps of Jesus is of such a value and degree, it cannot just be preached from a pulpit. It cannot just be proclaimed. It has to be actually lived out in the context of everyday life. And that's what Paul is determined to do. And glorifying God in that, in that instance is difficult, but possible. I would say it's like this. Imagine, you were a, imagine you're a, a builder of bridges, and you build the, the most fantastic, beautiful, brilliant, strong bridge that ever existed. Now, how would you glorify that bridge? Well, you could talk about it. You could tell people about it. You could show them pictures of it. That would be one way to do it. But what was the best way to glorify that bridge would be to put traffic on it to let traffic go across it, to let it bear the weight, to let it show its strength and capability to bear the weight of the 18-wheelers and all the things that will be on top of it. I think that's a picture of how we glorify God in suffering. We put our weight on him, and we say, will it hold? Will he hold, or will he crack? And we demonstrate to the world that he is capable and glorious. I have to admit to you that that's probably a foreign experience for many of us, and it has been for me. I I try to run from any pain and suffering that that really comes my way, Uh, but I have seen this experience uh, with my wife, and she told me I could share this story even though she was very reluctant about it because I talk about it a lot more than she does, but if you guys know us, you know that uh, my wife has this autoimmune disease called rheumatoid arthritis, the the immune system attacks the joints and cripples and degenerates and causes all kinds of pain and uh she was diagnosed with that right as we got uh, married and uh she, i would say she really spent probably 18 months um in in tears and frustration and anger and uh fear so there wasn't this immediate oh good god is glorified I don't, it just doesn't happen that way there was probably 18 months of severe just emotional struggle with god and this disease. And then, about uh, I not know, nine or ten months ago, she said. She said this. We were talking about it one day, and she said, uh, personally. Uh, she said, I, I have uh, decided to stop praying to be healed from arthritis. She said, I truly believe. This is the life to which God has called and is calling me. It's part of my sanctification that God has his own purposes with me and that he will get unspeakable glory from it. His life, my life is his life. And he can do what he wishes with it. And I wept when I heard that. Because that doesn't come from man. It can only be given by God. And it's not to say that we don't pray for healing. We do pray for healing. But it's to say the purpose of our bodies is are given to God to bring Him manifest glory in all things. And so I would say that Paul is saying here that when we come into these moments of suffering and pain, we should not run from them. We should not try to numb them with hours of TV and entertainment. But we should... See them as a context where God's glory could be revealed and where we might get unspeakable joy. Number three, I think we need to see that uh, this idea of suffering is not a a new problem. Paul says in, in verse 13, We have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believed and so I spoke. He quotes Psalm 116. He says, look, this has been going on forever. I'll tell you, a 1,000 years ago, here's a psalmist. Here's a guy writing a psalm. He was struggling with the same issue. He was afflicted. He, was, he had uh, massive suffering and pain in his life. And what the psalmist says in 116.10 is, I believe God in the midst of it, and I spoke about it. And if you notice, what I've noticed is that the greatest sufferers really become the greatest witnesses. They, become, they get the greatest platforms from which to speak about the glory of God. And I think that what that says to me is that God is not just seeking teachers of his glory. He's seeking witnesses of it. Those who have seen it. Those who have held it up. Those who have not just heard about it, but loved it. Number four, you need to see that today's pain is not the end of the story. Verse 14, he says this, We know he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Today's body is not the end of the story. Today's ailment and sickness and pain is not the end of the story because there is a new body that is to come. Number five, we need to see that he satisfies us in front of others in the midst of suffering. Verse 15, very strange wording, but he says this, it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. There's probably no more powerful way to glorify God than to show that He is valuable and treasured even in the midst of suffering and in the midst of pain and you may say look i i personally I've got no interest in suffering for God, I've got no interest in trusting Him, taking him taking care of me. I don't want to suffer at all and that's a that's a true response, but the reality is is that all of us will suffer in some way. And so your alternatives would be to deny the suffering, which doesn't help, or to suffer without any purpose or meaning whatsoever. And so God graciously comes and says, I will give you a purpose, namely to extend my grace, to become a witness to my grace, even in the midst of pain. And to see that it goes to more and more people. And notice that Paul says, at the beginning of verse 15, it's it's so confusing because he says, it's all for your sake. So that as you suffer, grace goes to more and more people and God gets glory. How is that for my sake? And what Paul seems to be saying or assuming here is that there's an integral link between the glory of God and us seeing and experiencing it and it all being for our sake. And it all being for our joy and our um, our pleasure. That's why he's able to say in the Psalms, oh God, at your right hand, Psalm 16, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Six and last. Um, We need to see that he uses suffering to produce ultimate enjoyment. Verse 16 says, We do not, so we do not lose heart. Therefore, if all these things are true, we don't lose heart. That's what glory is. Glory means we don't have to lose heart. We can be perplexed and afflicted and beaten down, but not forsaken and crushed and driven to despair. And so Paul says, Our outer nature is wasting away, but our inner nature is being renewed day by day. There's a glorious thing happening day by day. We don't often see it. We see the wasting away. We see the breaking down. We see the negative. But God is internally bringing about new creation. He is internally bringing about glory day by day. And then Paul says this, what could seem like the most insensitive thing you could ever say. And he says, this slight momentary affliction, and he goes on. And I think, to those who have really suffered, that statement, slight momentary, must simply seem trite and insensitive and just cruel. And if we didn't know about Paul, if we didn't know that, as I said before, he had suffered really more than anyone else in the history of Scripture other than Jesus, then we would say, Paul's an insensitive jerk. But he has suffered that, he has seen that, and yet he has experienced God's glory being greater in the midst of that. And so he says that it's a light affliction. How does he say it's light? Well, in comparison with the weight of glory, he says in verse 17. It's light in, com- in comparison with what will come. It's momentary in the sense, not in the sense that it'll be all, all better tomorrow. He's not making the promise, don't worry, you feel bad today, don't worry, suffering today. It'll all be better tomorrow. No, he's saying it can only last one lifetime. And that's discouraging and encouraging. But he's saying it can only last one lifetime, and then there are an eternal weight of glory left to experience without them. The version on the screen says that that light momentary affliction is preparing us. But really the best translation, I think, is that it's producing in us. It's achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. In other words, it's... Every single thing that exists, everything that you do, every every circumstance and event that comes into your life is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. It's producing in you the ability to actually understand what that phrase means when he says it's beyond all comparison. The, the Greek is hyperbolen. Ace hyperbole, in which you hear the word hyperbole, right, which means exaggeration. It's not even translatable in the English. It's hyperbole unto hyperbole, beyond all comparison, exaggeration upon exaggeration, better than any words could actually describe. And Paul says that everything we experience here, all the pain, all the suffering, will be turned and created and used and to achieve something no ear has heard and no eye has seen. C.S. Lewis says this. They say of some temporal suffering, there is no future bliss that can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And so in all things, whether suffering or rejoicing, whether we are living or dying, we are made to experience and see and take joy at, beholding, The glory of Christ. And may he be ever before our eyes. Because that which we behold. We will become like. And so we must ask ourselves. What are we valuing. Treasuring. Staring at. Desiring. Longing for. Because that is the thing we will become beholden to. And so may God hold before our eyes. That which is worthy. The glory of Christ. Let's pray.